This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Coronavirus changed forever. Presented by Balance of Nature. Welcome to our special broadcast, Coronavirus Changed Forever, from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. There's hardly an industry that hasn't been hit hard by COVID-19. Some are going to come back immediately after the stay-in-place orders are gone, but many won't. The travel industry right now is at a dead stop, and its future, frankly, is something of a mystery. Will so many people be itching to go somewhere that there's a travel boom after this is over? Or are people going to be so cautious or short of money from cutbacks, furloughs, and firings that discretionary income is something all but the very rich will talk about in the past tense for a while? Jackie Gifford is editor of Travel and Leisure and is watching all of this. Jackie, good to talk to you. How are you? I'm good. I'm here in New York City in my apartment where I've been since this all began. And I'm here with my family. I feel very lucky that I can work from home and and talk to people like yourself remotely about the state of our industry. Well, let's talk about the state of that industry. Where is it right now? There are a lot of regional airports that are down to one flight a day, even out of major airports. There are planes flying with one or two people on them. How is the industry doing? Sure. I mean, you 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 really you know captured it earlier on. It's it's at a virtual standstill right now. You know, the, there are still domestic flights going out, but they're nearly empty. And at the end of the day, international flights. You know, because of border restrictions, there's just there's just not many things happening right now. I mean, there are no flights going between the U.S. and Canada. So what I think, you know, in hotels, let's let's be honest. Most a lot of them are closed. Um, some are open. What's interesting is that if you have a long-term guest um, or somebody who lives in a hotel full time, they actually some of them some hotels actually need to stay open to serve those guests and serve their needs. But most hotels are, are closed or running at very very limited capacity. So the industry is at a virtual standstill, and what we're seeing now is as each state, each each region starts to think about the future, they're trying to coordinate in phases how things are going to reopen. And and don't get me wrong, hotels are a part of that conversation, but they're they're usually in the third or fourth phase, right? Along with entertainment options, you know, larger facilities that that just have a lot of people in them. And this is a this is an unprecedented time for our business, but I do want to put things in perspective a little bit. I mean, tourism and travel was at its very, very peak in 2019. First of all, it employs one in 10 people around the world. There were record amounts of people flying. So I think as we look ahead to get back to those 2019 numbers, it's going to take a little bit of time. But I, I don't doubt that the desire to travel is still there amongst all of us right now. And it's just going to have to roll out in phases. And it might happen a little bit slower than we want it to. It's interesting to watch how airlines are trying to deal with what the future is going to look like. Nobody's installed these yet, but I've seen airlines playing with new seating called Janus after the two-faced god, where the middle seat is going to face the back of the aircraft 
and everybody has plexiglass around them. So one thing I think that's really interesting as we look to the future of air travel is the idea of the middle seat being empty and airlines right now are are basically leaving them virtually, they're leaving them empty to embrace this idea of social distancing. And we've seen certain um, models come out of, of new airplane design that shows that the middle seat could be actually reversed the other direction, plexiglass, separating, um, separating people so that there's, you know, there's there's a literal physical barrier to to make sure that you know there was you know when you, l- let's be honest when people get on planes you know sometimes they'll cough sometimes they'll sneeze and so those those glass partitions are there to to help protect people in the future right now a lot of the airlines are demanding people wear a mask to even board a plane so i'm wondering what the future of air travel looks like in terms of just even getting on board will we need to wear a mask will they be taking our temperatures how long will this go on because some predictions about this virus are that it will level off or diminish but won't completely go away for a couple of years yet we have to remember and i wrote about this in my june editor's letter what flying was like before 9-11, it was so different, right? You could walk right up to the gate and greet a family member when they were stepping off of a plane. You could basically walk through with very little security. And then 9-11 happened and we were completely shattered and people were really, really afraid to fly for a very long time. And then you had the TSA, you had enhanced screening, you had everything from the liquid rule to taking off your shoes before you go through um, the metal detectors and the securities. And then that became our new normal, right? So will masks be our new normal? They could be. I don't, I think they might be in the short term. That's a pretty safe bet to say. In the long term, as people understand more about the coronavirus, and hopefully, God willing, there's a vaccine, maybe we might have another new normal. As editor of Travel and Leisure, are you starting to think about features or maybe you're already having work done on where it might be safe to go at first? Because on the one hand, I would think, wow, I don't want to be with a big group of people. So maybe going somewhere like Rapa Nui, better known as Easter Island, completely isolated, perfect place to go. Wait, there's no hospital facilities. Maybe that's the last place I want to go. Are you looking at where it might be first safe to go as people start to travel again? When people read a copy of Travel and Leisure and they have it in their hands, they're often planning for vacations two, sometimes three years down the road because it's a dream trip. So the information that we're publishing now is still relevant. It still gives people a sense also that there's a future out there. And I really want people to remain hopeful. And then digitally, we're doing tons of stories about virtual travel, the best museum tours. And then I think when people do start to travel again, they're going to do so regionally. My first trip, I think might be just as simple as a little staycation in New York City. I would think there might be some great bargains out there, Jackie, if I book now, because probably so many hotels and airlines are desperate for getting some cash in, even at a deep discount, that they're going to offer me something really good. But then I'm thinking, I don't know whether a trip in October is reality, optimism, foolishness. How can I plan travel right now and take advantage of the rates that are available, but still protect my choices in case what I'm planning isn't practical. Yeah, I think the the well the the couple things to consider right is that the airlines have 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 instituted some pretty flexible booking policies right now, and and in some cases like what I've seen happen is so say you book you know you book your flight um, then 
if things don't open up, like I had, for example, a flight that was booked to Italy in March, right? And so it very quickly became apparent that I wasn't going to take be able to take that flight and because their service was suspended. And so in some cases, the decision is made for you, right? That it's that it's ultimately the, the flight is canceled. Um, but right now we're seeing most hotels and airlines give travelers a very flexible um, rebooking policy. And I, but ultimately, I think it, it behooves anybody who's booking a trip right now to read the fine print. Before we go, let's make clear what the insurance situation is. A lot of people get insurance for a flight and they think, okay, I'm fine. I'm covered for something like what we're going through now. Are they? So one thing any traveler these days should keep in mind when they're booking insurance is to read the fine print. So for example, if you're booking the the standard travel insurance through perhaps the airline, you know, when you're prompted, you're booking a ticket and you click on the insurance, that's typically pretty basic or limited service that's not going to cover an epidemic. Right now, you have to keep in mind that coronavirus is a known event. And so oftentimes, it will now be excluded from any sort of insurance policy. So really, if you want to protect yourself in the most broad way possible, and you have to book a cancel for any reason policy. And although that might cost you more, it typically could cost about 40% of the total cost of the trip. That will give you some peace of mind that if you decide you don't want to go out on the road, you have some flexibility and you'll be able to get back some of your money. You know, I would have thought at a time when travel was out for most people, even daydreaming about it might be too painful. But lest we forget, daydreaming is what 90% of people do when they pick up the travel section of a paper or travel and leisure. I know you've had some online things like a piece on museums around the world that are getting millions of hits. What are people looking at? They're looking at, well, they just want, I think the thing that ultimately we do as a brand so well. And, you know, we, we lean into the idea of armchair escapism and, and we've done that from the history the beginning of travel and leisure, we're turning 50 next year as a brand. And oftentimes, you know, what, what we do is bring the, we bring the world to you in the comfort of your home. We've always done that. The smart brands, the brands that are going to stay relevant will stay connected with their consumers, even though they know they're not traveling. They know that they they want to travel and the desire is there. So sharing these these little stories, I think, gives just people a little bit of relief because let's be honest, the news is so relentless and the headlines can seem so, um, it can make people feel really, really down. So any sort of mental relief and dreams about the future is helpful. Yeah, I've been trying to bring that hotel experience home. What I do is at 7 in the morning when my wife is sleeping, I start banging on the door and yelling, mate service. So, yeah, that's I like that. (laughs) I'm going to put a do not disturb sign on my bedroom door. How about that? (laughs) Absolutely perfect. Jackie Gifford is the editor of Travel and Leisure. Jackie, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. You're listening to the CBS special Coronavirus Changed Forever. Welcome back to the CBS special, Coronavirus Changed Forever. I'm Gil Gross. Covering the SARS-CoV-2 virus and the COVID-19 disease has been covering a moving target. New symptoms, new mutations, and often the prognostications fall dreadfully behind the reality. So what is it like in the hospitals? What do they need? Are they getting it? And how are they holding up? Professor Mel Herbert of UCLA Department of Emergency Medicine is also CEO of the online education company MRAP, E-M-R-A-P, and Corpendium. It's good to have you with us. How are you? I'm doing uh, well, thanks. And how are you holding up? 
Well, so far, so good. I know not the same for everybody, unfortunately, and I'm sure that's the same for you. So let's talk about this. Let's talk about the symptoms on this, because it seems that this is a trickster virus. I read about people who have tested positive for COVID-19 five times who have no symptoms, but of course, they're still shedding virus. And now children who we thought were breezing through this are showing up with symptoms similar to toxic shock syndrome or Kawasaki's disease. Do we even know exactly what this virus is doing to people? No, we don't. Um, It feels like in COVID years, we've been doing this for, you know, decades, but we still know so little about this virus. But it is true what you say. It's a trickster. There are people who apparently have no symptoms at all and other people that obviously get sick very quickly and die. And then there's everything in between. When we first sort of started thinking about this and seeing it, we thought of it as a lung problem, a pulmonary disease, something that made you very hypoxic, not being able to get enough oxygen and then sometimes having to be intubated, and then sometimes, unfortunately, dying. But now we realize it's really a systemic inflammatory disease. And what I mean by that is that all parts of people's body can be affected by this, from their skin to their heart to their lungs uh, to their blood. We're seeing people who are getting clots and having strokes at a very young age. We thought that kids weren't getting affected at all initially, and now we realize that they are. They're still quite protected compared to adults, but kids are getting sick, And now we're realizing that maybe this thing called Kawasaki syndrome, which is this um, well-described but quite rare syndrome described in 1967 by Dr. Kawasaki, of where you can have this constellation of fever that goes for many days and red eyes called conjunctivitis and then cracked lips and a big swollen tongue and extremities that swell up and lymph nodes that get really big. And and in and of itself, it's sort of bizarre and uh, maybe looks weird to the parents and to the child, but it's a really serious disorder because... It's associated with cardiac manifestations of heart failure and swelling and even heart attacks. And if you find it and treat it early, you can make that better. So it looks like a percent of kids are getting what looks like Kawasaki syndrome. Is it going to act the same way? We don't know. Is it going to affect the heart the same way? We don't know. But this thing is affecting kids much more harshly than we once thought. And again, as you say, we don't even know what we don't know yet. There are so many manifestations of this disorder. One of the things we're finding out from researchers working around the world is we may not know what this thing is because it may be things. They are finding mutations, as many as 14, one of which now seems to be the more prevalent form of this than the original Wuhan virus, which brings up a whole new set of problems. Yeah, this is normal. Uh, Viruses do this. They're tricksters, like you said. They will change the way they look so that they can fool your immune system. And the real concern is that is this going to be one of those viruses that can change enough that you get infected with it and maybe develop antibodies to that one, but its brother, who's a little bit different, you don't have immunity to? That certainly happens with things like influenza. Every year it goes through this thing called antigenic drift. It changes the way it looks a little bit. And so year to year you have to get a new uh, vaccine. And so if it turns out that this novel coronavirus does the same thing, it could mean that you get infected today, but maybe you could get infected again later. Or this year you get this year's version, but next year's version is different enough, you could get it again. These are some of the unanswered questions. And um, it's a real concern, obviously, because even if we come up with a vaccine, what if it doesn't work next year? How are we going to keep doing this year after year? One of the things you wonder about with these inflammatory symptoms that seem to come with COVID-19 that we're just catching up with, because, of course, the immediate goal has just been to save people's lives, is once they're out of the ER, once they're out of the hospital, we're finding permanent damage to the lungs, maybe the heart. It makes you wonder if further treatment's going to be needed for people, that this doesn't end just because you lived through it. 
Yeah, more unanswered questions. You know, this is this produces in the lungs in people who have a bed a terrible inflammatory response and to the point where sometimes even with mechanical ventilation, we can't get enough oxygen in. But for those people who get really sick and get off the ventilator, um, we don't know how much residual lung damage there's going to be. That's going to take months and even years to find out. But just being in the hospital for a long time and being on a ventilator is damage enough. We see patients now coming off the ventilators. They have to go to rehab. They're short of breath just getting out of a chair because you've been lying flat uh, or prone for weeks on end, uh, been giving medications, being sedated. And just doing that makes all of your muscles atrophy, even the muscles that you know run your lungs. So even if the lung itself is able to heal itself, there is, at least for some people, a very prolonged time after you leave the hospital just trying to get back to normal activities, get back some of that muscle um, in your legs, in your arms, in your diaphragm. But if, the, if there's a lot of damage to the lungs, it could be that these people that survive have a significant amount of fibrosis in their lungs and will never, ever actually be back to the way they were before they got the virus. And this might also be true in young people. And it's what I tell uh, my young friends and relatives all the time. Another reason you don't want to get this is that it might affect you uh, much more than we think. And so if you're a runner and you can run a four-minute mile, but you get a fairly bad version of this, we don't know yet if your lungs will be completely normal after that. So you don't want to get it because you don't want to spread it to old people who certainly are much more affected. But you might not want to get this because it could affect you as well. And it's a serious, serious virus, and people just have to understand that. Even the young people could be really affected by this. Our colleagues have seen even young people without any other medical problems die of this disease. It's a serious, serious thing. Okay, let's go into the ER where you have spent your life. And the first question really is basic. How stretched are we in emergency rooms around the country in terms of caring for people? Well, you know, uh, on our shows, we talk to docs all over the world in the emergency department. And what's really interesting about this pandemic is how it has so far been very regional. So our colleagues in New York are telling us that during the peak of this thing, they were so overwhelmed that uh, they just they couldn't deal with the volume of patients that were coming in. They had 50 patients in the emergency department on ventilators. On a busy day in some of these hospitals before the pandemic, you might have one or two patients on ventilators waiting to go upstairs to the intensive care unit. But because of the volumes, the intensive care unit was full. The second intensive care unit that they opened was full. The third one was full. So these patients had to wait downstairs in the emergency department, up to 40 or 50 of them at a time on ventilators in the emergency department. And you're just not prepared to look after those patients. They need very special nursing. They need very special physician care as well. The ER docs are really good at looking after you for those first few hours to get you through. But then for days and days being in the emergency department, you need to have an intensivist, a specialist who's looking after maybe five or six or eight patients at once. Some of these docs and nurses were asked to look after 30 or 40 patients at once. You can't give great care. So we had those docs and nurses in New York being completely overwhelmed. And then here in California, We saw what was happening and we shut the place down and we flattened the curve and we as physicians were concerned that's going to happen to us. I actually retired from clinical work a number of years ago, but all of us retired docs went in and got our emergency credentials because we thought it's all hands on deck. Every retired doc and nurse is going to have to go back and help out. But here in California, we did such a good job and also maybe because of the weather and maybe because we're more spread out, a number of factors. We didn't see the surge that New York saw. In fact, we saw the exact opposite. 
what we saw, because we were so good about telling people to stay home, is that everybody stayed home. The volumes of patients in the emergency departments in most of California went down by more than 50% and are still way down. And in fact, some of the docs have been laid off or have been given half the number of shifts or taking 60% salary uh, breaks. So it's affected regions very differently. In some places, overwhelming amounts of patients and in others, completely underwhelmed in the emergency department, still very busy in the intensive care unit. But it's the trickster is even regionally acting very differently. You've been talking to people in ERs around the country. Do doctors, nurses, and hospital staff have all the personal protective equipment that they need? Um, initially, in places like New York, they didn't. And we, as a, a group, had to work out ways of, you know, these N95 masks that everybody talks about. You really should only wear those for eight hours. That was sort of the manufacturer recommendations, the CDC recommendations. And so you go through a lot of these. And if you take them off between high-risk patients, you know, if you go see really high-risk patients, you should probably take off all of that equipment and get a new set. Well, they were doing that initially, but you run out very quickly because there were so many patients. So then we had to ask the question, well, can I wear it two days? Can I wear it between patients? Can I wear it five times? So in New York, they got to the point where even doing all that, it looked like they get right to the precipice. There wasn't going to be enough. And physicians and nurses were going to be asked to go and look after patients without enough equipment. And that actually happened in a number of hospitals. And that's really dangerous because in many situations, when you're intubating a patient, for example, there's lots of virus being shed and the docs and nurses in that room are very likely to, get, uh, to catch the disease if they don't have the equipment. In California, because we've been behind the curve, because we flattened the curve, because we haven't had that, it hasn't really been an issue here yet. And in New York now, and I talked to college just yesterday, saying that now they seem to have gotten past the worst part and there's more equipment coming. But it was pretty bad in lots of places that got hit hard because it's just hard to imagine the increase in volume of all of this equipment that you need. And we need to remember this, and this is really key. We need to remember this because there's a really good chance, as Dr. as Dr. Fauci has noted, that this thing is coming back again this year. It's going to come back later in the year, and it's also probably going to come back when the flu virus is very bad. So we better stockpile a whole bunch of this equipment and ventilators and get ready for the second wave. Well, let's talk more about that possible second wave this fall, and we'll do that in a moment as we continue with Dr. Mel Herbert on coronavirus, change forever here on the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to Coronavirus Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. We've been talking with Professor Mel Herbert of the UCLA Department of Emergency Medicine and CEO of the online education companies MRAP and Corpendium. And right before the break, we were talking about a very possible second wave of this virus coming in the fall. And of course, we need to talk more about that, especially since this virus seems to be mutating. Do doctors have fears, as contagious as this is, that we might reopen the economy too soon? I mean, on the one hand, you know, many people may not have a way to put food on the table or pay the rent if they don't get back to work. But on the other hand, it could be at the risk of their lives and the lives of people around them. Yeah, many physicians I talk to are very concerned about this. We see some of the things that are happening on the beaches and in some of the uh, states that are opening up. They are asking for this to explode. Um, this doesn't care that you're tired and that you're sick of being inside and that you're really suffering financially. It doesn't care. And so if people go back to normal activity, it's going to blow up again. You know, as much as this infected New York, only about 
20% of people have actually been infected. And so that means 80% haven't been infected. So if we go back to the way things looked before the pandemic, we will have another surge that will look just like the one that just occurred. And if your state or your local area suppressed the curve and flattened it out, and now you think it's over, you're wrong. In places like California, 95% or more of people haven't been exposed to this virus. So this could look just like it did a month or two ago with all of this opening. We have to open. Of course, everybody agrees we've got to get back, but we have to do it very slowly. We have to do it based on science. We have to do it based on testing and contact tracing. If we just think that magically this thing is going to go away, we are in big trouble. This thing has not gone away. It is still circulating and it desperately wants to explode again. A virus just wants to infect things. And if we're together, like we were before, it will infect many of us. It will overwhelm the healthcare system again. One of the things that has been positive around the country, though we've seen some incidents where people have been heckling, even threatening healthcare workers, is for the most part, people have been supportive. In New York City, people are opening their windows at 7 p.m. every night, applauding medical and other personnel working to save lives and cheering and some are playing or singing New York, New York. What does that kind of thing mean to people on the front lines of all this? I think it's really important. It's, it's hard to conceive of the stress that these docs and nurses are under. They're used to death. That's part of the job. But it's the overwhelming numbers of patients that are coming in dying. And there's often little that these docs and nurses can do. And psychologically, that is very, very stressful. And then add to that, that many of them are not going home to their families. They're concerned about infecting their own families. So they're living remote from their families remote from their friends. This puts an extra burden on. And to have people say thank you for what you're doing really, really matters. And they're concerned obviously also about themselves. They've seen colleagues catch this and get very sick. They've seen college catch this and die. And they wonder to themselves, could that be me? Could that happen to me? What's going to happen to my family if I get sick, if I die? So this is a tremendous struggle. And what's really concerning is that it They've done this and they've fought the war and the first wave of the war is over. And on the one hand, you're calling these docs and nurses brave and that's true. But then on the other hand, you're gathering together in groups of 50 on the beach. That's not very respectful. Let's try and open up the economy and do it right. Follow your local guidelines. Follow what the health experts are saying. Otherwise, this will explode. And then you're going to ask those people who are already suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, these docs and nurses, you're asking them to do it again. And then you'll ask them to do it again. And that's not fair. Let's talk about the world of emergency room doctors and nurses. Uh, we say that in really functional healthcare systems that you see overseas, uh, nationalized healthcare systems that really integrate well, the emergency department is really an integral part of that because there's always going to be, I broke my arm, I'm having a heart attack, my baby is sick, and that can occur at 3 a.m. And so you have to have an emergency department as part of a really well-integrated system you know, to make things work. But in a place like the United States that has very disjointed healthcare, some people getting spectacular healthcare that are very wealthy with great insurance, other people with almost no ongoing healthcare, the emergency department, the emergency medicine system is absolutely fundamental to the functioning of all of society. And people, I think, don't understand that. You don't think about the ER until you're having your heart attack, until your child is sick, until there is a pandemic. And then you realize that the way into the healthcare system is through the emergency department door. The way into the healthcare system to save your life is via that doc and that nurse that are working 24-7, 365 to make sure that when something bad happens, there's somebody there. And so this is you know, another thing that has shown to the world 
that the emergency department and the people that work there are the absolute cornerstone of all, all of medicine. Yeah, I think we're realizing that now more than ever. Professor Mel Herbert of UCLA Department of Emergency Medicine and CEO of the online education company's Corpendium and MRAP. And by the way, at emrap.org, though it's meant as a professional site, there's a lot of great information and videos for the general public to use as well. And that's emrap.org. O-R-G. Well, thank you so very much for having me on. And to all those uh, docs and nurses out there, thank you for what you do, because what you do really matters now more than ever. You're listening to the special Coronavirus Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to the CBS special Coronavirus Changed Forever. I'm Gil Gross. Farmers have already been suffering setbacks this past year because of the trade war with China. Add to that the virus, and times are tough. What this means for the American farmer and for you is an important story, and to help us tell it is John Piotti, the president and CEO of American Farmland Trust, which has been crusading for farmers being able to have land to feed us for 40 years. John, thank you for being here. How are you? Well, thanks. It's great to be here, Gail. Let's start with the virus, because that's the story we're going through right now. Schools and restaurants are closed, and how bad is that for farmers? Well, for those farmers who sell directly to schools and institutions and restaurants, it's been terrible. Uh, a number of farms have really built their whole operation around those kind of direct markets. And we work with farmers that literally had their entire market disappear overnight. The livestock processing plants where people work closely together, many of those are closed right now. Mm -hmm. So for farmers who deal in pigs, cows, and chickens, for many of them, there's no place for them to sell their livestock. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is affecting the, the coronavirus is affecting farmers in different ways, depending on the type of farm, where they're located, what their markets are. But livestock producers are being hard hit. Um, Obviously, dairy is being hard hit. It's a highly perishable product. If you can't move it, um, you got to get rid of it. That's why you're, you're hearing about milk being dumped. You mentioned livestock producers. Chairman of my board is a hog farmer. He is fortunate that he's been able to move his hogs, uh, but literally at pennies on the dollar. And there are a lot of farmers who, uh, who uh, can't move their animals, um, which is really devastating. The family farm especially has been in danger for some time because as urban areas grow out and the suburbs grow out, a lot of farmland has been bought up, and a lot of that is irreplaceable. In fact, it's only being replaced in places that really aren't all that good for farming. You're, you're absolutely right. Uh, farmland loss has been a major problem in this country uh, probably for the last 50 or 60 years. That's one of the things that American Farmland Trust was very concerned about. We've been tracking that for years, and we have really been the force behind uh, land trusts, protecting land and the like. But the problem is not um, getting uh, any lessened. Uh, we right now are seeing about 2,000 acres a day which are being lost to development or converted to other uses that are incompatible with farming. And we need that land. We need it not only to grow our food, but we need it to provide a whole range of environmental services that we take for granted, uh, water recharge, wildlife habitat. I'm hoping that this pandemic, as horrible as it is, will be a wake-up call for people to recognize that we need food and we need our farmers and we need our farmland in order to have a resilient food system. Yeah, we already have an interesting food system that's developing 
because we pushed a lot of farming out to, say, California, which is great sunshine all year round. But a lot of the farmers are in areas where there's pretty much no rain. Water has to be piped in from hundreds of miles away. So they built these pipelines, bringing water from places where maybe decades ago there wasn't that big a demand for water. But now those areas are urbanized. Now we have water wars, which is another thing for both family farms and even the corporate farms. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Gail. California is a place, it's really a microcosm of problems that are happening everywhere. But in California, it's it's really at another scale. It is a wonderful place to to raise vegetables or livestock. The climate is very well suited to it. But it is, as you say, both um, experiencing extreme water shortages. And in addition to that, it's a place where people want to live. So it's also experiencing incredible development pressure. Um, uh, situations that are really driving farmers out of business. So we already had the tariff war and crops such as soybeans, much of which were bought in Asia, now going nowhere. Congress passed $28 billion to help the farmers during that fight. They've now passed another $19 billion to help American farmers survive during the war against the SARS-CoV-2 virus. 60 Minutes did a look recently at how that money to help in the trade wars was distributed. Most of that was not going to small and medium farmers. It was going to large corporate farms. But even more than that, they were going to people who weren't farmers. They were just family members or investors. They were musicians in New York City or stockbrokers, people who had never been on a farm in their lives. (laughs) How is that affecting things? Well, it does affect things. And we we do need support for farms of all sizes in this country. And I think that the market facilitation program, which was in response to the trade wars, I think the vast majority of that funding flowed to uh, very large farms um, and to the owners of their farms, whether they are the actual dirt on the boots farmers or, or not. Um, is that bad? Well, it's bad if it means that funding is not flowing to the small and medium-sized farms. At American Farmland Trust, we believe we need farms of all sizes and all scales, and they have all been impacted by the trade wars, and they are all being impacted by the coronavirus pandemic. So I don't want to pit big against small. We need it all, but we are not providing the level of support that's needed for our small and medium-sized farms. And those are the farms that we need for a host of reasons. They're the folks in the local community. They're the folks who volunteer on the fire department. Um, They're really the the backbone of a lot of rural communities. But they're also our defense when there are problems, because having a diversified, resilient and local food system is part of the answer to weathering crises. It's interesting. We talk about our manufactured goods coming from overseas, and then we find out, wow, we can't make masks and other personal protective equipment during a virus epidemic. We don't talk as much about the fact that so much of our produce now comes from overseas, that we don't have the farmland to make it here in an emergency. So many things here that we eat don't come from this country anymore. Um, We have great farmland in this country. Sadly, some of it is disappearing faster than it should. But we can have a food system um, that is uh, reliant, um, uh, is resourceful, um, is serving our needs. um, And we don't want to close our borders or anything like that. It's important to have trade. That's a big part of agriculture. You can't grow everything everywhere. 
but we should be growing as much as we can in this country. And we need our farmers and our farmland to do that. With the tariff wars hurting farms and now with the virus, the corporate farms with investors may be able to hold on, but the small family farms, the medium-sized farms too, you wonder whether they're going to disappear and with them, a way of life. No, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Farming does more than grow food. It is often uh, the backbone of rural communities. Um, it is the people who volunteer in those, in those communities. Um, and uh, I, I want to really stress the important environmental services that farmers provide, um, the open space that they manage, the, the wise stewardship of, of, of the land. Um, that's why we have uh, clean air. Um, that's, that's why we have uh, clean water. Water in many cases. If it wasn't for the farms around New York City, which have been protected, there wouldn't be a water supply for that urban area. We don't often think about the interplay between rural and urban and the myriad services that farms provide um, to our broader society. So losing farmland and losing farmers and seeing particularly small and and medium-sized farms go out of business is bad for local economy, but it's ultimately bad for all of us. Um, It's going to hurt our environment, it's going to hurt our national economy, and it's going to put real constraints on our food supply. John Piotti is president and CEO of American Farmland Trust, which has been trying to protect farmland and farmers for some 40 years. John, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Gail. Really appreciate it. You're listening to Coronavirus Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to Coronavirus Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. There is a sickness we've seen in the last couple of months that is not directly caused by the novel coronavirus, scams. People using this illness and these deaths to line their pockets and steal money from the desperate. The Secret Service has a unit devoted to unmasking these schemes, and CBS News senior investigative correspondent Catherine Herridge got an exclusive look at what they're doing. You can see here that they uh, the total cost of masks was five thousand, and they were five thousand dollars. Five thousand dollars, and they were requesting payment up front. If you get an email like this, what are the red flags? They request Western Union MoneyGram or Bitcoin as for- forms of payment. A legitimate business will offer payments either through invoicing or through credit cards. Adam Myers with the tech security firm CrowdStrike says cyber criminals are working all of the angles. There are plenty of threat actors that will uh, use phone scams as well. How does that work? They will call up, they'll know a lot about you and that will kind of build that trust and then you kind of follow the instruction. Always call back uh, and make sure that it's, it's something that's legitimate. According to CNET senior producer Dan Patterson, people are getting messages that look like they came from actual health providers, telling them that records show they tested positive for COVID-19 or even HIV. And then it prompts those individuals to click on a link, download a piece of malware that ins- then installs software that starts to exfiltrate uh, personal data. The idea here is to get information that could be used to steal your identity and your money. One especially vicious scam claims to sell vaccines that don't exist or other medical treatments that just don't work and often aren't delivered anyway once you pay for them up front. CBS News consumer investigative correspondent Anna Werner saw one supposed coronavirus medical kit sold online that claimed to be from the World Health Organization. 
it wasn't. So the Customs and Border Protection has been tweeting out photos of items that it has seized. Um, one of them is sort of like a, a box of little vials. They showed these pictures on, on Twitter of things that people are saying are either at-home treatments or they are, uh, or they are saying one of them a treatment is a treatment kit. The acting commissioner said on Twitter that police in the UK arrested a man for selling those kits. And then the other ones are counterfeit test kits that came through Los Angeles airport. They were labeled as purified water vials. So these are the kinds of things that people who are, uh, you might call them creative or just call them scammers, frankly, are saying, hey, I can make a quick buck off of this, sell something to people. And one of these things, Actually, the CBP said had some what might be dangerous uh, ingredients to it. So beware. People know many of you are getting stimulus checks, and they want that money. They know you need masks, so they'll use that to charge exorbitant prices. And it isn't just scammers living in mom's basement halfway around the world, either. Well-connected people started companies that sprang up out of nowhere getting contracts and money for masks and ventilators they had no way of getting. Check out any alleged product that says it does something nothing else can do. More than likely, it can't do it either. Don't believe online ads for things promising cures. Anyone who had anything like that wouldn't have to advertise. People would be beating down their door. Often instead, the people beating down their door will be the FBI. This has been Coronavirus, Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Produced by District Productive and Paul Woody Woodhull, I'm Gil Gross. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most-watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.